hip fractures are common, but they're complicated. What's the right approach to the patient with a hip fracture, and how do we both treat them and prevent them? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our experts on all things hip are Drs. Phil Walinski and Katrin Tyler. Phil is an orthopedic trauma surgeon and professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of California, Davis, where he's a former vice chair of orthopedics and chief of trauma services. Katrin is an emergency medicine doctor and professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis, where she is the senior emergency care unit physician lead, geriatric emergency medicine fellowship director, and the vice chair for faculty development, wellness, and outreach. She's also the medical director for physician wellness for the health system. Here we go. Phil and Katrin, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about hip fractures and specifically hip fractures in the elderly population. I actually just learned as we were getting ready for this podcast, uh, you two have a long history of working quite closely together um, and with our institution in specifically this area. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've been working on in hip fractures over what sounds like the past seven years? You know, I think we're going to get a lot more into this, but this is a vulnerable population where I would say the broken bone for most of the patients serves as a marker of their frailty. So they're often complex medically. They have to be optimized for surgery. They often will come in through the ED. So the ED is the first people that see them. They need to be seen by our internal medical colleagues, internal medicine colleagues, since they typically will have many associated medical issues, assessed, optimized for surgery. And we try to do that as rapidly as possible. So our goal is within the first 48 hours, unless there's things that need to be optimized. And then after surgery, physical therapy needs to get the patients up and get them moving. And at the same time, we rapidly try and determine where they're going to go when they leave the hospital. So discharge planning gets involved. A lot of them will go to skilled nursing facilities. So there's a lot of people that touch these patients. And before we got together, a lot of this was not happening in a coordinated fashion. So for each hip fracture that came in, in some ways, we were reinventing the wheel. And we decided perhaps there were better ways to do that. So together with a woman named Christina Slee, who works in quality and safety here, we applied for and got a grant from the Office of the President of the University of California. We had a lot of support from the chief medical officer at that time, and we were able to get everyone to sit down at the table and come up with a pathway. So as soon as the patients hit the door, we spelled out what should happen and when that should happen. So it was the same thing every time as much as possible. And I would add that it's probably equally as much about doing things as it is about not doing things. So for example, avoiding over-medicating the patient so they don't get delirious. Avoiding certain medications in this population is critical. Avoiding unnecessary tests that just prolong their time to the operating room. One thing that we found very helpful was we met weekly and we would talk about all the patients who had been seen over the prior week and how they did and what we thought went well and what we thought what didn't go well, because none of this is set in stone and our program has evolved you know, as we've gone along. So 
Catherine, it sounds to me like I've been talking a bunch. I mean, what are, what's your experience been? Yeah, so I think I just got sort of stepping back for what happens in other health systems. I think what we've found is that really caring for older patients is so much a team sport. You know, it really needs a coordinated plan. And, you know, for patients who we know to be particularly vulnerable, you know, with really high mortalities after the event, like patients who've sustained a hip fracture, it's so much better care for the patient and so much less frustrating for us if we have a a plan in place ahead of time for how we're going to manage those patients. And we see this in all kinds of different areas, right? That's what stroke care looks like. That's what heart attack care looks like. That's what trauma care looks like. And Phil's being very modest. It was really him who did all the heavy lifting of this program with the rest of us just kind of dropping in. It's been a great thing to be part of because you know that those patients are getting better care by being involved in the program, really just by paying attention to some of the details. And, you know, it's sort of one of the travesties of modern medicine is that we don't talk to each other in, you know, in our individual silos anymore. And so, you know, being part of these multidisciplinary teams has been really interesting because you you get to talk to the other people who are involved in the care of these patients. And basically, it wasn't a huge program, but we showed some really big changes in terms of reducing the patient's length of stay, getting them out of the hospital sooner, reducing delirium, all just by paying attention to really, I mean, none of it is rocket science, just paying attention to the basics sort of from the get-go and not leaving them to the will of, you know, the the randomness of a an encounter and whoever's on at the time. That's such a key point, I think, right? That a hip fracture is particularly in an elderly patient, right, who has presumably sustained this hip fracture, not by being in a T-bone MVC, but but in a fall from standing is an orthopedic injury, right? There's a broken bone, but it's so much more than that. It's a sentinel about so many other potential problems with the patient. And it, this isn't an injury that happens in someone who is young and healthy and vigorous and not on any medications. Like sort of my typical pediatric surgical patient, right? They These kids do not sustain these, these injuries. Right. Um, so it's always going to be that multi-system complicated patient. Right. So to have that and, pathway makes so much sense. And the mortality from these injuries is terrible. You know, it's like about 20% for women and a close to 40% for men at 12 months. I mean, it's really high. So, you know, if you're a, a man and you fall down and you break your hip, you know, just in a ground level fall, it's usually that you've got something really seriously wrong with you because almost all of these injuries occur in women, about three quarters of them occur in women. So wow. I think like for EMS providers in the field, you know, realizing how frail these patients are that's that's caused this injury. And, you know, sometimes they do have other injuries, but almost always it's just this sort of isolated hip fracture. But as they're being transported into the facility, especially if you're in a rural area where you've got sort of longer transport times, the dosing of medications can be important. One of the things that happens to these patients is that they don't want to move because moving is painful, but they mm. must move because that's how you don't get pneumonia and all those kinds of things. So in the hospital, we have all these sort of careful multimodal analgesia mechanisms in the field, you know, you're just going to have to be really judicious with the pain medication so that you're transporting somebody safely, but comfortably. Yeah. Someone who's like awake and, and very potentially opioid naive and fragile, right? 
Right. You know, it's it's fascinating to me, right? And I'm going to jump around to a couple of topics, so stop me if I'm not making sense. But I actually get excited about this. So first of all, you know, what other injury has a mortality rate of 30% in a year? I mean, you know, as, as a surgeon, right, as a pediatric surgeon, if you are taking care of a group of patients that had that higher mortality rate, I mean, that's pretty big. It's hard to think of patients that have, you know, a higher mortality rate. Now, the crazy thing is that if you live the first year, it goes back to the baseline hmm. mortality rate for the population. So that's good. And it's a little bit, sometimes I think, misleading to talk about that mortality rate because these do happen in older patients. But what happens to you, complications, mortality, morbidity, I think is completely related to how functional you are before you hurt yourself or how frail you are. Yeah. And we have all these scoring systems and you know, they all work really well, but they're basically trying to tease out you know, someone who hikes 10 miles a day and they tripped over their dog and broke their hip. Is a completely different situation than someone who's already at a skilled nursing facility and walks with assistance, you know, or aides, doesn't really get out, you know, in the community. And in fact, that's how we rank them. So, you know, you're independent at home or you're at home, but you use ambulatory aids or you, you know, don't really get out of your home, but you're independent or you're at home and you use ambulatory aids or you're in a sniff hmm. and everything you know, kind of correlates with that. So that's the first thing, you know, I see this look come over families' faces because they go, yeah, my mom broke her hip. What's the big deal? And you say, mm -hmm. you know, you got to realize like your, your mom has a 30% chance of dying in the first year. Or, you know, for some really failed people, this is kind of the beginning of the end. Like you yeah. can just tell, you, you know, of course you don't know exactly when they're going to pass away, but, you know, telling people that and seeing the look on their faces, you know, pretty... Sometimes they're shocked. And so, you know, I'd say for EMS people, that's something to think about, you know, like letting the family know that like, oh, it's not, you know, mom or grandma trip and fell and broke her arm and probably they're going to be all right. Right. Like back this in a is, week, you know, like, yeah, yeah. this is a big change in their life, you know, and yeah. it can begin that, you know, that downward spiral. You know, a second thing is blood thinners. You know, a lot of people are anticoagulated and when they fall and they, you know, break their hip, they hit their head. And if they're not on a blood thinner and more prone to bleed, you know, perhaps nothing would happen, but looking for signs of neurologic injuries when, you know, you, they, they go on, you know, runs to pick people up, or certainly when they come to the hospital, you know, a lot of people end up getting head CTs because if they do have a head bleed, they're much more complex and the mortality and morbidity rate goes up. The other thing is this, you know, multidisciplinary thing has been shown to work in the literature and it totally makes sense, right? I mean, it's not rocket science. So the joke about orthopedic surgeons is, you know, bone broke, me fix. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but I'll say it, you know, and, but when we talk amongst ourselves, I mean, not all hip fractures are the same. They happen in different areas and some of them need, you know, a total joint replacement and some of them need half a joint replacement and some of them get rods and some of them get screws and plates. And, you know, your guy's eyes is glaze over when we talk about this stuff as they should, because that's what I know about, right? That's what I'm good at. That's what I went to school for. And that's what I do every day. On the other hand, I am not very good about taking care of people's, you know, associated, you know, medical conditions. And so it makes sense, you know, for me to like adjust someone's diabetes medication would be insane. But for a geriatrician or, you know, an internal medicine doc, this is not a big deal. So it totally makes sense to 
you know, I don't want to say divide up the patient, but my area is what operation do they need? How well am I going to do the operation? And I need to make sure that they can walk on their hip after we fix them. Because one of the driving principles in taking care of older people with hip fractures is they can't stay down for an extended period of time. They start to get deconditioned. You know, if they're down for a while, you know, bed sores, pulmonary, you know, embolisms, blood clots, all that kind of stuff, but they get deconditioned very quickly. So that's how I view my role. Katrin, like, I don't really know what goes on in the ED. And we could say, yeah, you know, within five minutes of the patient hitting the ED door, like you should be able to figure out that they have a broken hip. You know, what's wrong with everybody down there? And Katrin can say, okay, that's insane. Do you know how many people <laughs> come in? And do you know what we have to do? And it may be two hours before we even know that their hip is broken. And so it's so helpful to have everyone who touches the patient come together. You know, we get their input and we go, okay, that's what we're going to do. So the discharge planners used to come see the patients after surgery. And we said, well, you know, that's like day two or that's day three. Why don't you talk to the patient and their family when they're down there in the ED, maybe even, right? We know that 75% of them are going to go to a skilled nursing facility, start having the discussion rather than day three. You know, again, you know, the family's sitting there and you go, well, wait a minute, what do, you, what do you mean my mom can't go home? What, what do you mean she's going to need to go to a the skilled nursing facility, you know, she, she lived at home. Why can't she just go home? And then they have to think about it for a few days. And, you know, it just delays the whole process. So, I, you know, this has been, been written about a lot in the literature on broken hips, and it's been proven to be very successful. And basically, you know, spelling out what each different group of people does when they do it, expectations really help streamline the process. So we got our length of stay down to just over five days. And, you know, on some floors, I think we started catching, do you remember it was like seven or eight, eight or yeah, eight, yeah, 10? Yeah, it was, you know, yeah. yeah. So many great points there. I think it's such a key thing to start thinking about this process at the home, right? When EMS is going to pick up this person who's fallen, who they maybe have a broken hip, both in terms of setting those expectations, right? Like not promising the family, like this patient's coming back and they're coming back in three days. Just making clear, like this is a big life event and everyone sort of needs to be on top of that. You know, getting that history at the house of like what medications they're on, what their baseline level of function the, is. The, the medication thing is key, right? They yeah. Come in and they're on some anticoagulant and the bottles there. Yeah. Uh, you know, a day later, we're like, well, they on this or are they not on this? And once right. they, when did they, they take their it, one, yeah, which could determine when they go to surgery, because, you know, unlike some of the drugs you can do a blood test for a lot of the newer oral ones, you can't and you lose that opportunity, right? Like when is the last time you took this pill? Yeah. Take it this morning or did you not take, you know? So we have a, a whole separate episode of, of this podcast series is just about novel anticoagulants and how to address this problem. And and to boil, you know, 20 minutes that you all should listen to down, like find the pill bottle, figure out when the last time they took the medicine is and bring it to the hospital because I it totally affects like what we do. And I thought that point about, you know, like there's a head bleed too, you know, on a patient with an anticoagulation that's going to potentially change the picture. Like Katrin, talk about that a little bit. Like a patient comes in, you know, and sometimes these patients may be demented at baseline, but, and sometimes they may not. And so how do you, how do you tease out, you know, what's, a patient who's just, you know, demented at baseline from a patient who's got an ongoing head bleed 
um, right. that is a neurosurgical emergency. And now we're all focused on the fact that the hip is rotated. You know, obviously UC Davis is a level one trauma center. So the way that we, our trauma algorithms go is a little different to what it's going to look like in the community. But pretty much every community ED is going to have some kind of protocol for an older patient who's fallen and especially one who's on an anticoagulant of some kind to expedite the um, CT head scanning. And usually that will also include the cervical spine CT scan in those patients because we know that the decision rules that we have for clearing cervical spines in younger patients aren't validated in the older patient population nearly as well. You know, here at you know at a, at a trauma center, there, there does to be, seem to be a bit of a tendency to pan scan those patients, which actually speaks to Phil's earlier point about how sometimes that actually can really slow down our workup of the, you know, we they need to have their head scanned. They don't necessarily need to have their chest scanned. So sometimes that holds us up getting those plain films of the area that we're actually most concerned about. But I mean, that's sort of some of the nuances of a level one trauma facility making some differences in their algorithms. And I'm sure we've all experienced that in different ways. But certainly getting the patient into the CT scan and make sure that their head is okay early on is a high priority in most emergency departments around the country. Yeah. I mean, that makes huge sense, right? They're just like, you take yeah. nothing for granted. <laughs> right. And, you know, very often they're, you know, walkie talkie until they're not walkie talkie. <laughs> so. Let's talk a little bit about risk factors for hip fractures. And, and Catherine, you and I did a, a whole separate episode of the podcast about falls and things mm -hmm. that you can do to reduce falls. And obviously one cause of hip fractures is falling down and landing on your hip. But as was certainly true of me 20 years ago, and hopefully is true of me now, if I fell down and landed on my hip, like I, it wouldn't break. So what is it about older people that, you know, their hips fracture? Well, the most important reason is probably, you know, osteoporosis that, you know, we see in fairly widespread, particularly in older women, less so in older men because of tend to have testosterone and stronger bones. But, you know, particularly in older women, when you're seeing significant osteoporosis, often it doesn't take much of an injury to cause a a large fragility fracture. As Phil mentioned earlier, you know, you'll often see a ground level fall that, you know, and the patient has a standard fall on an outstretched hand and we'll see them with a uh, distal radial fracture. Often they'll also have some vertebral compression fractures that there may be an acute traumatic component to as well. You know, the pubic rami fractures often fall into this sort of same category. But the hip fractures are really the ones that cause the huge lifestyle change. And, you know, Phil already talked about how, quickly patients can come, become deconditioned. And, you know, one of the things that many geriatric emergency departments are starting to move towards is screening patients for fragility using one of the fragility scales. One of the most common ones is the Canadian frailty score. It basically goes from one, which is somebody who's very fit and active and healthy all the time, to nine is somebody who is essentially preterminal and bed bound. And then there's a bunch of stages in, in between. So, you know, if you have, like Phil was talking about, if you have somebody who's not ambulatory at baseline or mi minimally ambulatory, the impact of, of having the hip fracture is really likely to be really serious for that person. And even for the other people who are already active at baseline, it's going to be a lot of work for those people to get back to where they were. And I think that's one of the things that I think EMS and emergency physicians can really help families and patients understand is that 
like there's no pre-having for a, for a hip fracture. It's not like when you go to have your elective knee done and you've done all the PT and stuff, done all the right things. That does not happen, you know, when you just fall and break your hip. And so getting back into condition is often a lot more physical therapy and work than those patients have really had to think about for quite a while. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of upper extremity fractures in uh, older women in my practice. Everyone gets osteoporosis, which is basically your bones get weaker when you get older, both because the hard parts of the bone mineral density goes down, but also the microarchitecture changes. Everyone stops laying bone down by the time they're 30. And there's this enormous genetic component to how much it affects you. There are some lifestyle choices you can make. So smoking affects your bones in a bad way. Drinking a lot adversely affects your bones. Impact exercise, so running, walking, that helps you keep it so that, you know, the struggle is you, you, you peak out your bone mass when you're in your late 20s, and then you struggle to keep that you know, for the rest of your life. So not smoking and not drinking a lot, you know, doing impact exercises can help. But the fact is everyone loses bone mass for the rest of their lives. For most men, it happens later in life. We don't catch up till our 70s or 80s. For women, you know, it happens, you know, more quickly. So the best way to treat a hip fracture is to prevent it. So when I see um, someone who has a ground level fall, and they break a typical bone for osteoporosis, so their wrist or their shoulder. Or if my spine colleague sees someone who has a minor spine fracture, you know, one of our jobs is to try and get people evaluated to see if they have osteoporosis. Because if they do, there are drugs they can be treated with that decreases their chance of having another fracture. And, you know, breaking your wrist is bad enough breaking your shoulder is bad enough. Like that is a miserable experience for people for the first three to six weeks. But, you know, breaking your hip is, is quite, quite challenging. And, you know, if you're 20 and you broke your hip and people do that, but it's typically more of a high energy thing, you know, we say, you know, in the trauma world, well, a young patient could take a joke, meaning, you know, you can, they can get hurt pretty badly, but they have this huge reserve. They're young, they're strong, they're vital. You can hurt them and they'll recover. An older patient, you know, it's like they're sitting on the top of the fence and they're okay walking around out there. They're living their life. They're going to the store. They're going to the restaurants. They're hanging with their friends. But it doesn't take much to flick them off that fence or off that cliff, you know, and they fall down the other side and it's trouble. And, you know, I think it's kind of another point for, you know, EMS. Everyone knows, you know, you go to the, you know, someone's fallen down and, you know, they can't get up like the commercial help. I've fallen and I can't get up. And, you know, they say my hip hurts, my groin hurts, you know, and typically their leg is shortened and it's internally rotated compared to the other side. And if they touch their leg, they scream. Well, you know, that's kind of an obvious one. But, you know, I'd say that anyone who has groin pain, who's in the right patient population and they can't walk you know, they need to go to the emergency room. They need to be evaluated. You know, we'll get a plain x-ray and if nothing shows up on that, but the patient can't walk, you know, we'll try to get an MRI scan. Or if we can't get an MRI scan for some reason, we'll get a CT scan because if they do have a fracture and that fracture is non-displaced, first of all, it's a lot easier to take care of before it displaces. It hurts a lot less, less blood loss, less time in the operating room. A lot of them displace if you miss them when they're non-displaced. So, 
you know, someone who falls, and there's some Canadian rule for that also, Katrin, that I never can remember the name. But basically, if you're, you know, fall, if you trip and you fall and you can't put weight on your leg, like you need to go see the doctor. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this as well in, in the falls episode, right? That That is a, a key point for EMS is if someone falls and they can't walk, they really need to go in and they may not want to because they're afraid that yeah. that's going to be it, right? That like, they're going to go into the hospital and then the next stop is a nursing home and the next yeah. stop is a cemetery, right? Like yeah. culturally, we're sort of conditioned to think when you start falling as an adult, like, or as an elderly person, uh, that's the end. And yeah. the statistics kind of back it up is the terrible thing, right? I mean, I don't like going to the doctor, you know, and that's a typical guy thing, right? Like, oh, it'll be fine. Like, I'll just, you know, drink a scotch and I'll be fine when I wake up in the morning. But you know, if someone can't walk, like you need to, you need to go get it checked out because it can get much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and you're, then you're not walking at home, right? You're, you're sitting in a chair, not getting and up you're, and getting that recovery, pneumonia. Your recovery is much longer and it's yeah. much more painful. And there's a higher chance you'll go to a skilled nursing facility and you'll be there longer, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's way easier to deal with when it's a little crack. And then when, you know, the bone is blown up. Just thinking about my colleagues who are in rural emergency departments where access to an MRI might be a much, much more limited, but access to CT scan is normally pretty good. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, when someone who can't walk and they have groin pain, you know, we're going to be very concerned that they have some kind of hip fracture. Plain films are typically enough, uh, typically, you know, good enough to make the diagnosis. But if they're negative and someone can't bear weight and they have groin pain, you know, I think you need to move to another imaging modality. So here, you know, even here, sometimes accessing the MRI scanner is not easy, particularly on busy, you know, trauma weekends or holidays. But we skip over a CT scan only for the reason that if the CT scan doesn't show anything and they still hurt, you know, we're going to get an MRI because that is like the most sensitive and specific imaging technique that we currently have. But to your point, some people can't get MRIs, some hospitals don't have them, you know, so I think a CT scan is the next, you know, way to go. And that will also detect, you know, a fair number of fractures that you can't see, you know, on plain films. I mean, I'd say, so you can break different parts of your hip and there's part of it called the greater choke hander that it doesn't really matter what that is. But, you know, if someone just has a fracture of their greater choke hander on plain film, at this point we go, that's not enough because we know that a large percentage of those people will have another fracture line that you can see on MRI. And so if, you know, if we'll get an MRI and when we see that fracture line, we'll go ahead and fix them to prevent that other fracture line from progressing because, you know, people who like to fall tend to fall. It's typically not a one-off thing, you know, for whatever reason, like, you know, once you've taken that initial fall and you're hurting and you're trying to be more careful, I mean, what happens, right? You, you, you know, you just, you just keep falling and older people, not only do they have weaker bones, but they have slower reflexes. So Katrin, if you tripped, you could probably get your hands in front of you to break your fall and maybe you would break your finger or your wrist or something, but a lot of older people can't do that. And so they will fall on their side and that's how you break your hip. Mm. So younger people do, if you fall right on your side, right over that, you know, bone on the outside of your hip, cyclists are ones who blow up their, you know, hips by just falling. And it's often like a slow fall. 
So, you know, again, it's a higher, you know, energy injury versus if they're going really fast, you kind of like skid along and maybe you disperse the force, you know, and, and I think, you know, looking around your house, if you're older, you know, is there a loose carpet? You know, are there things that you can trip over? There are actually organizations that'll come to your house and help, you know, fall proof things to a certain extent. And uh, I personally see a lot of people's dogs and cats taking them out. So, you know, just being cognizant of things that are, you know, in and around your feet as you get older is always, you know, like a good thing. And, you know, I'm more worried about this because I'm almost 60 years old. So the number of hip fractures is supposedly around 350,000 per year in the U.S. now. And the projection is that by 2040 or 2050, you know, it's going to be half a million people a year because my group, the baby boomers, so I just made it into baby boomer, we make up a giant part of the population. And so as we age, the percent of the population that is elderly is going to become gigantic. You know, when I was 20 or 30 and a resident, I was, of course, indestructible. And people with hip fractures were, you know, my grandparents, they might as well have been aliens from another planet. But now I realize I am going to be that person. And so one of my drivers here, you know, to, at UC Davis to develop this program to take care of people is, you know, I realized that one day that's going to be me or that's going to be my wife. And, you know, I, I want a system that will take care of me, you know, quickly and appropriately. You were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, how you have sort of built out this continuity of care within the hospital, within our hospital now. And it, clearly you've sort of outlined some of the things that EMS can do in being, in terms of being thoughtful and also ways that we should recognize sentinel injuries like those wrist fractures, you know, or vertebral body fractures as, as signs that a, there's maybe an impending hip fracture. Are there, are there things that we could do or that any hospital group could do to sort of transition and care of the hip fracture patient after they're discharged from the hospital, like when they're at a skilled nursing facility, you know, is it enough to sort of say you go to a sniff and in, in my mind, that's always a little bit of a black box. Are, are there things that we can do to sort of integrate into the care after hospitalization? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, the older I get, the less I like things that are magic. And so, you know, it is magic, right? Someone comes to the hospital, they have a broken hip, we operate on them, you know, then somehow people come from somewhere and they magically decide where the patient's going to go. The patient goes there and then somehow they magically come back and see me, you know, in the office. And I no longer like things that are magical because it turns out that things that you think are happening maybe don't. So there are complications associated with the surgery that I do. People get infected, things don't heal, things fall apart. But, you know, we talked at the beginning how often the hip fracture comes in a package with a lot of associated medical issues and how people don't have a lot of reserve. And so the stress of breaking their hip is stress one. And then surgery, you know, even though people are under anesthesia, you know, they're not asleep. I mean, this is an attack, a second attack on their body. And things often go a little haywire for a while because patients don't have a lot of reserve. They're seen by my medicine colleagues. Oftentimes medications get changed in the hospital. Uh, and then the patient goes off to a skilled nursing facility. And the most common reason they get readmitted is another medical issue. So dehydration or you know, something along those lines. So the concept of continuity of care 
like maybe the same group of people that take care of them in the hospital now take care of them in the stiff. And there's two-way communication. Like, hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, like, did you notice that, you know, her blood sugars are really high? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we gave her, you know, this medication, we changed it. And maybe that's why they're low now. You know, she needs to go back to her prior dose. So now at UC Davis, I think there's... Catcher, maybe, you know, I don't know, five SNFs or seven skilled nursing facilities that the hospitalists, so the same group of people who help take care of the patients in, in the hospital are now taking care of those patients in the skilled nursing facility. So that communication is helpful. The second thing is they'll often go home with a laundry list of doctors to see, right? Hey, tell your primary care doctor you fell and you broke your hip. Hey, you need to get a test for your osteoporosis. Hey, you know, we found this lung mass on your CT scan and, you know, you should get that worked up at some point. And when I have 25-year-old patients who come back to see me and I go, hey, did you know that you were supposed to go see like Dr. X? They'll just look at me and go, dude, are you crazy? I haven't been home yet. I'm in this skilled nursing facility. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to talk to anyone. So now we have people at our institution who help set up those visits prior to the patient leaving the hospital. You know, so it takes, you know, a village to raise a kid or whatever that saying was, you know, it takes a bunch of people to help take care of these frailer patients when they leave the hospital. So setting up appointments for them, making sure they're getting the correct medications, making sure that the docs at the SNF know what medications they were on beforehand, you know, what got changed in the hospital, why they got changed, can only be helpful to try and prevent them from having to come back to the hospital. Yeah, and then hopefully at this at the skilled nursing facility, they're, they're getting skilled nursing and 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 rehabilitation services, even if it's you know they don't qualify for. Yeah, no, full on rehab, but at least physical therapy, right? Yeah, SNFs are skilled nursing facilities are great at getting people up and you know getting them moving. Yeah, you know every day, you know even a couple times a day, and that's a huge part of this. I mean, so people really hurt, and we operate on them, and they hurt less, but it's not like they don't hurt at all. And then we have to be careful about what pain medications we give them, because older people can't tolerate a lot of pain medications, and they get a thing called delirium, where basically you don't know who you are or where you are or when it is. You're convinced people are attacking you. There's two kinds of delirium. There's one where people are out of control and there's one where they get withdrawn and you think they're, they're their best patients in the world because they're really quiet and they're really cooperative, but it turns out that that's a form of delirium. And the problem with delirium is that the complication rate you know, goes up massively. People who understand that the patient's going to hurt and that we have to be careful about how much pain medication we give them, but that getting them up, even though they hurt, is critical, is enormous for taking care of this population. And that's why, for example, in our hospital, so the 14th floor, Davis 14, is where is our ortho floor. And the incidence of delirium there is lower for hip fractures than in the rest of the hospital. That does not mean that there's better nursing staff there. All it means is, again, you're good at what you do every day. So the orthopedic surgery nurses are very familiar with patients with broken bones and how to get them up. They're not good if you're a kid. So you're a pediatric surgeon, right? I don't think you'd want your kid on Davis 14. And they're not good for patients with heart problems because, again, you know, they don't do it every day and they're not as familiar. So we try to get our patients on Davis 14 because we've, you know, built this village of people who are very familiar with patients with broken bones, 
and they know what it's like the day before surgery, the day of surgery, the day after surgery, second day after surgery. And presumably that also helps, right? To sort of, you know, for both of you, knowing what a normal hip fracture yes. looks like, then you can know that you, your alarm bells go off when something is not going according to plan. Yes. Right? If you see one hip fracture patient every three months, that is way different than seeing 10 hip fracture patients a week. And you go, this isn't normal. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but this isn't normal. I, I should get someone to look into this. So that is an excellent point. Yeah. This has all been so great. I mean, I, I, as a pediatric surgeon, this is not my area of expertise. I've, I've seen fewer hip fractures, I'm sure, than almost anybody listening to this podcast, but I, I've learned a ton. If, yeah, I, so sorry, I yeah, just got to play yeah. one. Like, so I wouldn't want to you know, take care of a kid. Like I'd want you taking care of my kid. So when my yeah. kid was younger, she came in one day with like, you know, the babysitter and her face was red. And I thought the babysitter was a very stoic person. It turned out she really wasn't. But, you know, I thought my kid had some mid-face infection, hmm. which I went to Google and read about. And like, it's very serious, right? And so yeah. I rushed her to the pediatrician. Anyway, she got suntan lotion in her eye and the pediatrician <laughs> just laughed at me. And he goes, dude, she got suntan lotion in her eye. So that's exactly what you're saying. Yes. I want my kid taken care of by a pediatric surgeon. I want my grandma or me, you know, taken care of by a group of people who are used to taking care of hip fractures, if that makes sense. Right. We are good at what we do every single day. Yeah. We are not so good. I mean, I think we're all relatively motivated, smart people, or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. And I can go like, yeah, that kid doubled over in the corner holding his stomach. That's probably not okay. But the subtler things I won't see. That's the stuff that you learn to notice, like the subtler cues that something is up. So sorry to interrupt you. No, so I think that just it makes yeah. that, that makes that point, right? Like yeah. nobody should feel bad about not being an expert in something they don't see all the time. And you know, we here have the the benefit of not just you know experienced emergency <laughs> medicine people, but geriatrics trained emergency medicine people who are starting this evaluation and then going into a, you know a multidisciplinary team where all of this exists. So I, I just think like. It's such a great example of you know a system that you can build, assuming that you have the volume to build it. And 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 for places that don't have the volume to build it, you know, feeling free to reach out to those high volume centers, you know, particularly if if something seems just like it, it doesn't make sense or isn't going right. For people who um, who want to know more, obviously, uh, Catherine, you talked about the uh, Canadian Clinical Frailty Score. We'll put that in the show notes so people can sort of see what that looks like. Uh, it seems like a really valuable tool. Other things or, or, or places that you know people should be aware of for so, so learning one, more about hip fractures? Yeah. So actually, one thing that popped up between our first and second conversation was the CDC actually just released a new set of guidelines and activities on the importance of falls in older patients. And it's much more patient-facing. So I think that's actually pretty awesome. I also think a quick shout out to our physical therapy colleagues who really bear the brunt of a lot of the work of getting people up and mobilized. And to Phil's earlier point, for emergency physicians or EMS providers who are seeing patients in the community who's fallen and who don't have a hip fracture, it's really important to get those patients exercising as much as possible. And as I said the other day, you know, a lot of older patients don't have that much experience with exercising. They need a guide. 
you know, and physical therapy, outpatient physical therapy can be so important for those patients. There's a lot of guidelines now for um, hip fracture programs. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has nice guidelines for what should be done in the preoperative period, what should be done in the um, rehab period. So at the heart of it is having a conversation with the people in your hospital to find out, you know, who's interested in doing a better job of this than, you know, what you're currently doing. I, I think there's a lot of information out there now. And the trend is for national organizations to not reinvent the wheel but to link to information from other organizations. So Katrin mentioned so the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is my big national organization. So AAOS.org has a lot of information and links out to emergency room resources or medical resources. And the same thing for orthopedic trauma associations, so OTA.org. And OTA.org actually has a patient education section. We have a lot of information on there. We're going to have more. But the, the focus of that is the patient. So it's written not to physicians, but it's written for patients and for families for a variety of injuries. So they know what it means. They know what to expect. They know what the typical, you know, pre-surgery, who needs surgery, what's rehab like. So there are a lot of resources out there on the internet that can be very helpful for patients and families to read. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll, we'll find a place for all of those resources in our show notes as well. Thank you both so much for taking the time here. I've learned a ton. I think this is an, clearly you two have together with other people here, put together an amazing program. And it was great to, to both hear about it and to, to hear about how the lessons that you've learned could translate into uh, care for patients uh, across the country. So thank you so much. Thanks for thank inviting us. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department, is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hiroshi, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central RTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Stay safe out there.